This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. I'm Oliver Swan, a managing partner of Treesdale Real Estate Partners, a New York-based investment platform focusing on the acquisition and ownership of student housing and other alternative asset classes throughout the uh, U.S. Uh, What I love about real estate is the fact that uh, it's the perfect marriage between uh, investment and the finance world and uh, being able to visit and uh, touch a real asset. And there's nothing more satisfying than... um, Acquiring a piece of real estate, um, executing on a strategy, and then tangibly being able to see those results day in and day out and see uh, happy residents, um, that's, that really makes me smile. Why is student housing rarely talked about, but in many cases, it's the most influential and significant driver of a real estate market? It's also a source of innovation by the very consumers that it's servicing. What's more, it's a source of building personal communities and leading to the next generation of real estate consumers. We'll find out the real story. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With real estate tech entrepreneur Thomas Kutzman and business development expert Scott Pollock. Welcome, Oliver. Hello, Oliver. How's your day? Hi. Glad to be here. Beautiful day in New York. And we wanted to talk to you about student housing. You know, growing up, we all went to college, or most of us went to college, and we were thinking about dorms. Is student housing dorms? Dorms are certainly uh, a component of student housing. Um, There are about 20 20 million college students across the U.S., And on average, most universities only have the capacity to house approximately 20 to 25% of their student population. So generally, first-year students will live in the dorms, and those are often owned by the university. Sometimes they're owned by uh, third parties and sometimes in private partnerships. And then what we focus on is what we call off-campus student housing. And these are generally apartment buildings that were uh, initially conceived, built, uh, and 100% solely intended to house students. So you tend to have uh, larger bedrooms. uh, You might have like a a four-bedroom, four-bath apartment. And uh, these properties tend to be fully amenitized with uh, resort-style pools and clubhouses and um, fitness facilities and golf simulators in some cases. And of course, they are in close proximity to, uh, to campus. I want to go back to college. That sounds awesome. It sounds better than the dorms we stayed in. My house sounds terrible. And wh- how does the cost compare to to the what the universities provide? Well, generally speaking, the cost is pretty competitive. In most cases, the cost is actually less than what the university charges. Uh, universities have very large investments in their facilities, and they have um, huge uh, amounts of staff, and and in some cases, unionized labor. Um, and they provide a great they provide a great product. However, our price point is generally it starts below what the university charges, and in some cases it, it may be a little bit more. But um, you know it, it's it's pretty competitive. And but do you consider yourselves to 
be competing against colleges or is it that colleges can't actually provide housing for everybody? So you're actually, in a way, providing a service to the colleges and universities that you have housing at? So that's a great question. There are two forms of student, there, there are two forms of student housing, one of which is a partnership with the university um, where you're operating a facility on behalf of the university. And the other is a purely private uh, model where you know you have a, a good relationship with the university, but it ends there. So in fact, our model is we don't compete with the university. We actually tend to have a very strong relationship with each university that we're at. And because those universities, can't fill uh, or can't house all of their own students. They want to see their students in modern, safe, luxurious housing around campus. And as a matter of fact, it's a big draw for the university because as prospective students or their parents tour the university, they like to be able to see, well, these are, you know, this is the universe of uh, student housing options. And it ranges from the 1960s dorm style with cinder blocks all the way to the ultra luxury property a mile from campus with a shuttle bus and a hundred thousand gallon uh, saltwater pool. And how did you first get involved with student housing? When you look at real estate, there's so many different you know areas, verticals, asset classes that you can get into from residential to commercial. What's so interesting about student housing versus other asset classes that really got you involved? Well, I initially started in the uh, in the mid 2000s, and student housing at that point was uh, it, it was starting to become institutionalized. It had not yet reached the critical mass that it has today. Meaning previously it was just a random homeowner in the area rented out their home to students? Well, the the um, sort of the, the very early student housing product, which I'm, by which I mean apartment complexes, you know, built for students, was really built in like the early 2000s. So yes, in fact, most of the students were living in regular multifamily apartment complexes uh, or, or houses uh, or on campus. And, you know, there was difficulty, you know, if you're uh, a first year student, and you're going into your second year, you'd have to find a roommate, you'd have to find an apartment, you'd have to negotiate with a landlord, you'd have to set up your own electric and all of your cable and internet. And you'd have to read this complicated lease, and you'd have to go and get furniture. And it was sort of difficult and daunting for someone who's 19 years old. And what this industry has done is it's made this very convenient, attractive package for students. You know, in most cases, uh, the apartments are fully furnished. Um, we have uh, roommate matching. Um, all of the amenities are designed specifically for students. As a parent, you know that your son or daughter is going to live only with students, not with a plumber or a doctor or a tax accountant or a truck driver. And that's that's very important to have that sense of community where it's student only, but it's it's one step away from the dorms. And how does the application process work? Does the university inform the students? Do the parents find out about you versus as an option versus the university? How, how does that application process work for, for your consumer? Well, in most cases, um, most students through their friends and through their social network tend to be familiar with the student housing properties that their friends or brother or sister live in. And 
once they're on campus at first year, they'll generally think, I want to live here the following year. And they'll go with friends. And we often have two, three, four students who will come in and they'll tour one of our communities or a competitor's community. And they generally have three or four communities and they tour it. And, um, you know, they make a decision based on lifestyle really first and generally price second and convenience and location third. Um, and we actually, because it's a captive market, we uh, start signing leases that uh, in the fall and those actually coincide with the academic year. So our leases go from generally August through the end of July the full 12 month academic cycle. And even when school is not in session, the, the residents, the students are responsible for paying their rent. And what we do is because that's a captive market and all of the student housing communities are sort of trying to compete for that, you know, particular body. We, um, we actually start leasing in, you know, the fall, October for that next right. academic year. And, and which, uh, which markets are you currently in? So I actually have experience in a number of markets, um, in particular, uh, nine markets across the country, everywhere from the Northeast, um, to, uh, to the Midwest and the Southwest. Um, and each market is very similar, but a little bit unique and different. And, um, a university is like the the anchor town in most of these, or the, sorry, the anchor factory in most of these towns. So when you go to um, College Station, Texas, Texas A&M is the big daddy there. And whether you're a student or even if you, you know, a faculty member or even if you work in a fast food restaurant, everything revolves around Texas A&M. So we talk about Anchor Factory. It's kind of like the the center of town that draws all the the people, the jobs, the opportunities, the students, the, the bars and restaurants are all centered around the college. Ev- literally everything. So generally in student housing, we only target what we call destination schools where the campus is a hub of activity, you know, 24-7, 365. So you'll have a large campus. You, you have this, that's not just the student center or the library. You often have a, a hospital and faculty housing and all those restaurants and colleges and bars and, and everything that goes with it. And, in you know, in most of these towns... That is the largest employer. Um, now, how does this, from a business standpoint, from for your business, how do the economics work compared to other residential real estate? Why would I want to be investing in student housing versus another residential you know, rental class? Because outside of primary markets like New York, Chicago, LA, most student housing is located in secondary and tertiary markets. And because because of the cost basis of the land, there is substantially lower on a relative basis. Um, all the multifamily um, complexes will get sort of a, you know a market rate. The student housing world allows us to have a density, and that density allows us to achieve a much higher rent per square foot. So keep in mind, we might have a two thousand square foot four-bedroom apartment, and we might be uh, on the low end collecting $2,000 because we're charging per per resident. So say we have charging $500 per resident. That same sized floor plan in a multifamily apartment complex might be a two-bedroom, and the rent there might be $1,500. That $500 monthly is real alpha. Mm. It's, a real, it's real money. 
you know, when you think about the the types of students that are coming to your properties and student housing in general, you know, it draws to mind something that's interesting when you think about the generations and how they're changing. So everyone talks these days about millennials and what millennials want, but, you know, you're really serving the next generation of the, I guess, Generation Z is what people refer to. So what is it that, that you're seeing about how that Generation Z, the, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds these days are, are, are making purchase decisions? Because you're really at the forefront of seeing how this next generation that are just becoming adults is thinking about everything they might consume in life moving forward. I think about it two ways. And one way is they've always been challenging. This population for, you know, since the beginning of time has been challenging. And the reason it's been challenging is these students have don't have expectations. And rightfully so. They just don't have the life experience to have proper expectations. So our viewpoint is we need to help instill you know, expectations and manage around those expectations. And that really hasn't changed over time. What has changed over time is the way that um, you know, this current generation communicates and interacts. For example, they hate picking up the telephone and, and you know, calling the leasing office. If they have a maintenance request, um, you know, we have a completely online system and, you know, they're supposed to go online and fill out a maintenance request online. They don't even like doing that now. They just want to be able to, you know, text someone, hey, my toilet's overflowing or go and, um, you know, post it on Facebook. Now, so, hmm? now, as it relates to the sort of maintenance requests, obviously, you know, college housing, you know, we've all seen Animal House, Old School. You know, what are, what are some of the sort of crazier sort of, you know, requests you've gotten from, from your tenants? <laughs> some of the crazier requests. Um, we... Um, so one of our competitors once had an incident. Um, it was a small town in Michigan. This was a large apartment complex that housed approximately 1,200 students. And um, very small town. And um, a hardware store called the property owner and said, Hey, Dave, um, did you know someone at your property just ordered 25 tons of sand? And Dave goes, 25 tons of sand? He goes, no, I uh, I don't know anything about that. The guy from the hardware store says, "Well, the trucks are on their way." So you know, Dave gets up, you know, excuses himself from dinner with his family, he goes over to the property, and there are like three hundred cars outside. You know, one one apartment, and he goes inside, and it's twenty degrees in February in Michigan, and they're having a beach party. They took tw- like twenty five tons of sand, put it in the living room, stacked the sand all the way up got a kiddie pool. It was, it was like, it was like Bermuda in Michigan. Um, so, so Dave said, okay guys, enjoy, have a good time. You got to get rid of the sand. So the kid said, okay, no problem. We'll get rid of the sand. He goes, listen, you have until, you know, midnight tonight, get rid of the sand. I said, no problem. So Dave goes home, finishes dinner with his family and, uh, he gets a call from the, uh, from the local police department and they go, uh, we heard someone at your property ordered a lot of sand. And Dave goes, yeah, yeah, I know. He goes, well, you know, all that sand is now off Route 44. <laughs> and Dave goes, oh, God. 
<laughs> Turns out the kids put everything, all the sand in their trunks, yeah. and then drove over and shoveled it off the side of the road. I mean, you talked about all the amenities of uh, saltwater pools and the like. Maybe they're just trying to create some of their own amenities. It seems totally rational. They, they, uh, they often do, and they, they tend to be creative. Um, you know, the, the hot tub, they call it a spa on the West Coast. Those those tend to be very popular. Mm. Um, we see we see all sorts of interesting things. <laughs> so is there is there an expectation that's being set for you know the types of amenities we joke about the building your own beach, but you did talk earlier about golf centers and the like. It seems like compared to when I was in school, where I lived in a bunch of cinder block dorms, the expectations that that are maybe being set now by these luxury complexes are are significantly different and and, and more luxury. Uh, what what are some of the ways that these this new generation of students that will soon enough be adults on their own might be thinking differently about their real estate in the future, where they want to live, how they want to live, and what they're looking for? We have an, we as an industry have set expectations, and in most of these markets, the student housing industry tends to be pretty competitive. So we might have in a large market a school with. 35,000 undergraduates, 10,000 graduate students. We might have 8,000 beds of off-campus student housing across 15 properties in eight sub-markets throughout campus. So you have everything from the brand new mid-rise 14-story student housing property right on top of campus to something three miles out that houses 600 students that was built in 2005 and has you know, the three largest pools you've ever seen outside of uh, Las Vegas. And because of that, those each property has to position itself in the marketplace. So there's a price point, which is dependent on the location and the amenities offered. So there's, there's, there's a compromise and there's a give and take. You know, as a student, would you rather be closer to campus and be in a more dense environment and have fewer amenities? Or would you rather be a little bit further from campus and, and have more of a, a luxurious lifestyle? Setting up the, bus. the classic balance that every grown-up eventually faces of, do I stay in the city or do I move to the suburbs? Uh, well, what's, setting it up early on. Well, absolutely. And what's most what's most depressing for for most of our residents is the once they graduate um, or you know leave you know student housing community, generally the next community that they live at is is generally never as nice as the student housing <laughs> community they just lived in for you know three or four in some cases five or six years, uh, depending on how long it takes them to graduate. That is Oliver Swan setting up students for a life of disappointment <laughs> and we'll, we'll just take a quick break here to you know think through uh, everything we've heard so far and uh we're uh, we're coming to snack time which is you know a tradition here on the mouth media network where we break bread with uh with our guests and uh you know oliver was kind enough to to bring a snack uh with us today and uh you know if you could just, you know tell us a little bit about uh what, what you brought for us today Absolutely. I, uh, well, I'm not sure what I brought. I brought snap peas. I've always seen them in the store. They looked too healthy. Lightly salty. And uh, I was always afraid to try them. So I figured I'd bring them uh, here and uh, I'd, I'd watch as you guys uh, you know, enjoy and you can tell me if it's... To, to be clear, that means you're not going to enjoy these snap peas with us because if you tell they're me too th- healthy for you? Well, they, they, are... they look very healthy and the packaging is green, which I've always found intimidating because mm. it, you know, it confers this whole... You know, organic, low calorie kind of mantra, which I'm just not into. Don't worry. And there's, there's... the name of it's Harvest Snaps. 
there's plenty of uh, asorbyl palmitate in it, so it's it's probably not as healthy as you expect. But thank well, you for this. Yeah, that, that, that helps. Yeah, thanks for thanks for bringing that, and uh, we'll we'll definitely test it out. We were talking earlier that your tenants don't like to pick up the phone, and you know. I want to get back into a little bit deeper on that and see how um, how we think about the technology behind things. And, and I want to dig a little bit deeper that on that when we come back. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. Are you looking to buy a home in New York City? Get more with Preview's industry-leading smart buyer rebate. Seamlessly search listings on Preview's end-to-end buyer platform, Purchase your home with the expert advice of a local agent, plus receive up to 2% cash back thanks to Preview's Smart Buyer Commission Rebate. Smart buyers get more with Preview. Go to previewapp.com backslash buyer. That's previewapp.com backslash buyer. Keep up with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Real Estate Biz Show and with hashtag MouthMedia. Plus, check out all of the MouthMedia Network shows at MouthMediaNetwork.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. So speaking of technology, Oliver, um, you were referencing earlier that you know the students who are in your properties these days, they don't want to call for a maintenance request. They want to text it in. They want to post on Facebook. They want to uh, you know, just have their their needs solved in the way that they communicate to all their friends, right? So it's interesting to think about the technology that you are uh, having to put in place to meet the needs of your tenants, uh, and just really think about how that's going to affect the way that everyone lives and works and and engages with the real estate in the future. So maybe help us understand what are some of those technologies that you have to put in place right now. Well. Real estate as a whole has generally lagged on the technology front simply because it hasn't, the real estate industry hasn't had to embrace technology. We are at the very forefront. All of our residents are between 18 and, you know, 22, 23. Um, so we have to cater to them from a technology perspective, provide, uh, you know, provide services to their expectations. And also on the other side, we need to manage our operations through advanced technology, especially when we have disparate sites all across the country. So as an example with, with residents, um, you know, for the past 10 years, uh, you know, all of our residents have had, you know, we require them to go online through a specific portal that we have that is designed for students. And that portal allows them to put in maintenance requests, pay their rent, um, uh, file their renter's insurance. Um, and that is the primary interface um, between their resident uh, on the back end of the business and and us as a you know quote unquote landlord. And is this stuff that you have to build for yourself as a company? Are there tools out there that you're leveraging? So there are a number of software vendors that make very specific tools for this purpose, and we utilize those tools. And we utilize generally a very seamless technology platform. So for example, we have online leasing. Um, so. You know, one common way we advertise is through Facebook. So a prospective resident may go onto our website. They'll explore our photos and our floor plans. And then they can actually lease the apartment from start to finish directly online. And that entire process is complicated. It runs through back end with 
credit checks and criminal background checks and in some cases roommate matching and that flows through you know um, you know an accounting office or a leasing office we'll execute it then you know goes to uh, our rent roll and everything is literally cloud-based and paperless. So I can see the efficiencies that come from you know leveraging these these platforms to manage the building and your properties across the country. Um, how about on the other side, on the consumer side? Are your tenants using technology, let's say Facebook or Snapchat or what have you, to in a way that's affecting how you have to run your business? I, I imagine, for example, that people aren't necessarily posting. Uh, you know, on Facebook talking about how much they, they love things because usually it's the opposite. Anything that's happening on that front? Sure, absolutely. So in terms of, you know, resident satisfaction, um, yeah, they generally will, the first place they will voice a complaint or an issue is online. And that is something that as an industry and as, you know, as a firm, we we struggle with. It's very difficult for us to manage a process when a resident is having a problem with their dishwasher, and instead of putting a maintenance request in or emailing the property or even calling us, they post to all of their friends, my dishwasher isn't working. Screw this place. My dishwasher isn't working. Right. You know, and, and it's 2 o'clock in the, you know, it's, it's 2 a.m. And they're really unhappy. Well, neither us nor really anyone in this space has the resources to monitor anything like Facebook 24-7. And it's just, it's not scalable and it's not efficient. And we reiterate over and over and over again, if you have an issue, please fill out the maintenance request, do it online. And the reason we do that is because we then can monitor how quickly does it take for us to dispatch a member of our maintenance staff? How many times has that has a member of the maintenance staff gone into that apartment for that same issue? Then we can look at all kinds of big data. We can say, are we having problems with that same dishwasher in 500 apartments? Do we have a dishwasher problem? Or do we have a problem where the resident isn't pre-rinsing their dishes and clogging it up? And this is the 15th time we've been in that apartment and we need to have a deeper conversation with that resident. As, as it relates to the big data, what percentage or what, what are your sort of engagement rates of your tenants that actually use the tools and services? What percentage of, of, of your tenancy uses the, the services you provide for them technologically? 100%. I mean, literally every resident in one form or another is is going to use our platform. Uh, package delivery. Students get tons of packages, more so than than most young people because they're getting books and everything else online. So we have a system. As soon as a package comes into the office, it's scanned in using an iPad. An email automatically goes out to that resident. It puts them in a queue. When they come in, we scan their ID, again, using the iPad, and we, and we check it out. So it's, very, so it's very similar to like a concierge in a, almost like a high-end building you'd, you'd find in a place like New York or, or Boston. Uh, absolutely, except it's done out of necessity and not for luxury, but yes. You know, you mentioned something interesting here and earlier, which is, you know, right now, some of those types of amenities might be in high-end buildings and major metropolitan areas, but, you know, for the most part across the country, real estate's a bit of an antiquated industry. They're not leveraging all these technologies, and, and but at the same time, the expectations are being set in student housing for what a, a future tenant of an apartment complex or a house might be looking for in their future real estate decisions, right? So is there 
Is there you know insight that you have into how future landlords will will need to react to the needs of these nineteen to twenty somethings when they become thirty somethings and forty somethings? It's it's very it's very difficult and it's very sophisticated. And the fact of the matter is, we provide in most cases almost all utilities except electricity to residents, and that includes internet. And when I say we have to provide internet, we basically operate as our own internet service provider or ISP at each property. We have to provide not just Ethernet jacks into each bedroom, which is something we've been doing since you know the early 2000s, but we now have to provide Wi-Fi throughout an entire community. And that's an incredibly complex thing to do. And in some of our in all of our new properties, we take a we take a pretty sophisticated approach. We'll go and we'll price out and bid out for for bandwidth. And we'll generally put in an 800 mega, uh, megabit or gigabit fiber optic line to the property. And we're putting in a really beefy enterprise class router and switches. And we have fiber optic cables connecting all of the buildings. And then we have Wi-Fi access points, again, enterprise grade, dispersed throughout apartments designed to provide coverage to every resident in every bedroom. And, and that's not easy to do. I mean, I, I'm pretty technically savvy, and yet I still have challenges with my router at home for my family of four. And you're talking about beefy enterprise-grade equipment for a 1,000 people. And as it relates to that, when you think of like the big partnerships you have out there, have you explored like reaching out to like a Google or Facebook? You know, Facebook's you know, reaching out and helping bring fiber to emerging markets. Google's bring it to entire sort of Midwestern cities. Have you looked to partner with really big brands to deliver that service for your tenants? Generally, this space and these locations just don't have the the uh, either the economies of scale or the populations to necessarily support a large enterprise like uh, Google being interested in running fiber to uh, Tucson, Arizona, for example. So it's difficult from that perspective. Um, is that actually an opportunity at the same time that, you know, Google Fiber is a good example. I think they were in Kansas City, for example, one of the first cities they went into. Is there an opportunity for student housing providers that are, you know, leveraging these anchor cities to work with the municipalities to drive technological innovation that supports not just your complex, not just the students at large, but the towns and cities that you're in? It's simply, it's simply too complex and cumbersome and people don't realize Google negotiated with Kansas city for years and years and years. And there's a tremendous legal framework and subsidies involved and that level of complexity and planning and bureaucracy is just daunting. And it doesn't make sense from uh, the perspective of a private uh, landlord or a real estate owner to, you know, to, to put his or her finger in that. Now, um, now I'm curious. You, we were talking about obviously how you know, Google negotiated for years with Kansas City, um, and they obviously identified that market. So, how do you go about picking your markets, and how are how do those markets differ from you know a New York centric sort of market? So we we're opportunity based. So we we cover you know generally every student housing market in the country. Um, so we look for a couple of things. One thing we look for are strong demographics. And that goes from the university level all the way down to the state level. And, um, you know, pick a school like the University of Michigan, which has had a tremendous uh, enrollment increase over time. That University of Michigan now has a tremendous population of out-of-state students. And that's always been the case, but it's gotten to the point now where for all intents and purposes, the University of Michigan, uh, Ann Arbor, is really a private school. 
And knowing that and knowing and digging in and realizing, well, you know, 30% of the students, uh, the uh, out-of-state students are from New York and 20% are from New Jersey and XYZ are from Connecticut. That helps set expectations when developers build student housing. And conceptually, they will gear it towards a price point and a certain demographic. What we focus on is the acquisition of existing product, which is going in and, and seeing how is this property operating? Where does it fit into the marketplace? Is it offering an Ikea product or a Target product or a Saks Fifth Avenue type product? And how can we go in there and operate it either more efficiently or how can we reposition it and you know increase value and execute on a strategy and finally monetize on that strategy? So is that to suggest that people coming from the coast have very different expectations than people coming from other parts of the country? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yes. And the experience operating a property, for example, in the deep south with more of a regional focus is very different than operating a, a property where 30% of your uh, population or your residents come from California. And when you when you look at these demographics, how do you go and think about the properties you acquire? How do you design for those demographics? How do you think about that creating those spaces in that community for those for those uh, students? So we look at two two sides of that, which are demand and supply. Um, so in terms of demand, we look at the university enrollment. How has university enrollment performed over the past 10 or 15 years? And generally universities master plan five, 10, and 20 years out. Universities are like factories that never go out of business. So they're there for hundreds of years in some cases, you know, especially land-grant institutions. So we'll, we'll look at the university and we'll figure out, well, they're planning to grow their enrollment from forty to 60,000 students. And we start a dialogue with the university. How quickly are you looking to achieve those goals? How, how are you going to do it? And we figure out what, what is that demand. And we're not satisfied with that. We then go and we look at the state-level demographics. How is that state performing? Does that, is that state seeing a population inflow or population outflow? How is the economy in that state? And that matters because if the economy isn't good, people aren't moving there for jobs and they're not going to start families. And family creation all the way down to the kindergarten level is eventually going to filter through. And we look at high school graduation rates and we also look at kindergarten enrollment. And if we see that middle school enrollment's down and kindergarten enrollment's down, we know high school enrollment will be down and then we'll know that, you know, it's going to be difficult for that university to increase enrollment 10% when they're picking from a much smaller pool. So something that I'm curious about is why the schools themselves, many of whom are planning, to, as you said, to expand from 40 to 60,000 students over the next 5, 10 years, why don't they invest more in off-campus housing, make it essentially on-campus. A lot of schools have done that. I look at NYU and Columbia and New York City. They're some of the biggest property owners in New York. Are, are other schools not doing that? So you have this sort of bifurcated between private universities and public universities. So off-campus student housing is predominantly at public universities. Private universities generally have the ability to house a much higher percentage of their students. And in a city like uh, New York or uh, Boston or uh, Los Angeles even, um, you know, if you go to UCLA, you can choose to live in one of 5,000 different apartments, you know, within, you know, two miles of, uh, of the UCLA campus. So we tend to focus on public universities. 
most public universities are seeing, you know, state budget cuts. And those have hit most universities relatively hard. So the way the university has to grow and expand is through enrollment because most universities are increasingly tuition dependent and not state budget dependent. And a university, you know, the administrators at the university are are foremost concerned with protecting um, the administration and the faculty of that university. And if enrollment declines and there are fewer students, there are fewer professors and there are fewer administrators that are needed. And that's a worst case nightmare and it turns into a spiral. So they look to grow enrollment and really uh, providing housing is, is um, for university is seen as an ancillary thing. And it's very difficult to fundraise for a dorm. You can put someone's name or a company name on a library or a sports stadium. Very difficult to do on a dorm. You mentioned earlier state budget cuts. Um, obviously, so, some states are seeing that, others aren't. Which which states are most attractive to you? Which are you seeing you know, from a policy perspective that are most supportive of, of bringing business and you know in, increasing this sort of university enrollment? Um. We generally we've generally seen that in the South as well as the Southwest, um, you know, states in the Midwest as well as the Northeast have seen in some cases population declines and those budget cuts and very limited job creation. So, all this is really interesting. You obviously have a pretty deep insight into the industry and 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 how everything is transforming. But I'm curious how you got your start. So, you know, student housing is relatively new. You said you got it, into it in the mid-2000s. How did you find yourself in this this kind of new, growing space? So, you know, honestly, very randomly, I had a little bit of multifamily experience. And, uh, you know, I was, looking, I was looking for a new position. And um, I landed up um, getting a job at a very small student housing owner-operator based in New York that had a very small portfolio in upstate New York, as well as uh, one state in the Midwest. And, um, you know, came on board and really learned the student housing industry from the ground up. And when I say from the ground up, I mean, you know, within two months of me starting, I got on a plane and I looked at an acquisition in, uh, in Illinois. And I had never been, you know, I'd really never been to Illinois outside of Chicago. And I was shocked to have to, you know, land at an airport and drive through four hours of cornfields. And I'm not kidding. And then you find yourself at, you know, um, Western Illinois University, you know, with 20,000 students and a, and a vibrant campus. And that was the first time I really understood and I saw um, student housing. And so when you, this was campus habitats that you joined back, uh, back then. Is this, uh, how did you kind of find them or did they find you? Because again, this was kind of a whole new area that seemingly was kind of coming out of nowhere when you, when you got started. Sure. It was sort of, it it was a matter of really good timing. Um, You know, they were just opening an office in New York at the time and had, um, you know, some non, what I'd called non-institutionalized student housing and, you know, duplexes and triplexes and, that's a way that's a way that some people in this industry got started yep. and um you know built that and expanded that 
um, and, you know, started to build the base and they were looking to, you know, further institutionalize and, and expand and scale. And, um, you know, they were looking for someone entrepreneurial who had some real estate experience and it's kind of just a marriage made in heaven. You know, and, and you mentioned that you had some multifamily housing experience before you got into students. So what was your early background? How did you, you know, what did you study in school and how did you get into real estate in the first place? So I, uh, I went to, uh, I went to business school at the, uh, Stern School of Business at NYU and I majored in finance. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I graduated in, uh, 2003 and I sort of had a very entrepreneurial bent at the time and I still do. And, uh, I, I think I may have been the only one in, uh, our Stern class not to go through the on-campus recruiting process. I didn't even, uh. I didn't even put an application in. Uh, one reason was I think the GPA required was like a 3.2, and I'm not sure that I met that at the time. Yeah, very but, elite standards. <laughs> but uh, regardless, I had no interest in doing it. And you know, I started my own company in the consumer products field, and um, it didn't work out. It was a total failure. What was it? Um, consumer products, <laughs> a very specific demographic. And um, it, it, Do you have to tell us more? I mean, this is... Nah, nah, it's 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 uh, ancient ancient history. <laughs> um, so, okay, so uh, <laughs> getting real now, getting real. So yeah, when I got out of college, I realized the Hispanic market was uh, demographically a burgeoning market with, um, you know, as a consumer class with uh, a lot more uh, potential, and it wasn't really being catered to by most consumer product companies. They were simply taking um, product lines and products that they were serving to the Caucasian and African-American market. And they were putting like, um, you know, Hispanic or Latino model on a advertisement or a product and saying, you know, and, and labeling it in Spanish and advertising it on a Spanish TV station and saying, this is for you. And I said to myself, well, this seems completely inadequate. Like, you know, <laughs> the person on that box should be Hispanic and it should be catered to them so that they can relate in certain product categories. And um, I absolutely hated it. And I realized through that process, um, you know, the reason it failed was I never, I didn't love it. I hated it. And I hated doing consumer product research and I hated consumer products and um I just hated the entire industry. I guess as a white male, it wasn't necessarily a category you identified with so much. It was something, yeah, I mean, it was something I knew nothing about. It was something I couldn't relate to. Yeah. And I viewed it as an opportunity. And that was my first entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneurial lesson, which was only do something that you love because otherwise you'll never be successful. And, and how did you find that you loved real estate? I imagine it's something that everyone can relate to because you, you've lived in a home somewhere, you've worked in a place somewhere, et cetera. How did you find your passion for it? You know, I was always, I was always interested in real estate and, um, you know, my family had a real estate business. I took a real estate class in college, which I actually hated. Uh, I thought the professor was terrible and that discouraged me at the time from going into real estate. It was just a miserable experience. And, you know, I realized after that and after my entrepreneurial failure, I got I got into real estate and I realized it was something I loved. And um, I was very fortunate just to, you know, be able to dive deep and explore it. And, 
you know, it's something that, you know, it's, it's really a combination of being entrepreneurial and analytical and, and really being a generalist and being able to do a lot of different tasks. And, um, you know, I could tell you, uh, you know, what we pay for garbage per ton. And I could also tell you what our IRRs are and our cash on cash returns. And I could also tell you how often a 50,000 gallon pool should be, uh, uh, replenished with the water. I I find that stuff interesting. <laughs> Coming up next, we'll get more personal with Oliver and also a final thought. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, at checkout. So, um, yeah, so we've been, we've been talking about student housing all day. You know, could you tell us a little bit about your freshman year dorm room, what it looked like, what was on the wall, and what sort of computer did you have? It was a, uh, it was a living disaster. Um, I actually very randomly landed up with a roommate from the same hometown. Um, we both moved up to New York to go you to didn't NYU. Know we had not known each other. Uh, he actually grew up you know, a town over from me, but you know, same difference. We had not known each other. Um, sort of similar backgrounds, coincidentally. Um, so we met, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, met at a Starbucks before we started. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we were just randomly matched with each other and, you know, moved on up. And, um, you know, it was a, it was sort of a shock. I, I didn't realize that people use the same towel twice. So, I mean, I came with like 10 bath towels for the shower and 10 hand towels. As one does. Because I wanted to make sure I had the seven days, you know, full week and a couple spares, you know, in case I didn't get to laundry. And uh, I realized like something was wrong as I was like loading, you know, my 20 something, uh, quantity of towels uh in the uh you know 100 square foot dorm room so it's a good and, thing uh, you had a walk-in closet in your nyu dorm right well i squeezed i squeezed everything in and i got a brand new computer brand new laptop at the time and um you know my roommate and i at the time we sort of got along and uh yeah, it very quickly devolved into a madness and uh it got to the point where um well let me back up by saying the real problem was he was a huge fish fan and he played like the nothing <laughs> the band. Uh. Yeah, yeah. He played nothing but fish uh constantly as well as the soundtrack to Rent. So, so and, fish uh, fish wasn't your thing. Fish wasn't my thing, Rent wasn't my thing, and the combination together was enough to make me want to jump out the window. The irony here of course being that Rent is now very much your thing in in some way and Sounds like this might have been an, the, another the, terrible pun. Um, <laughs> I'm just setting the stage, and the I think we found the the seeds of your interest in student housing to kind of fix the 
the challenges you seemingly faced well, your freshman year of college. Well, speaking of density, my first lesson in density within the student housing world was my roommate eventually got so sick of my mess that he uh, took a, uh, a marker and divided the room in half <laughs> and said that I was not permitted to cross over his half and that he wouldn't go over my half. And he took the line and went all the way straight to the front door and actually carved out the bathroom as well. What, did you get so, the uh, toilet or the sink? Or... Well, I used his bed, but we won't even go there. Yeah, that's another subject. <laughs> So yeah, you know, just uh, so now that you're a little bit older, and you've you know, have you become less messy, or do you take a different approach to your office and and home? No, I'm not any more mature. Um, <laughs> I'm really the same person <laughs> I was back then. Um, I Another tend to be interesting lesson about student housing. <laughs> no, I tend to be I tend to be clean, um, but messy. Uh, I know that's an oxymoron, but um, you know, I try to keep my car clean. Um, and it's very difficult because I love going to the drive through and I just, I have a two seat car. So I just put stuff in the back seat and then I forget about it. And then someone else will go in the car and they'll say, why are there a hundred like Big Mac boxes and cheeseburger wrappers? And why are there 20 Frappuccino cups in here? <laughs> it's just gets embarrassing. Speaking of cars, you mentioned that you have a uh, somewhat unusual hobby. Related to cars, I do. So my one of my uh, my my biggest hobby, the thing I love doing most, is um, is uh, it's not racing, but it's really uh, taking a car onto a racetrack in an organized, uh, non-competitive fashion with what, a what, car club. What type of cars? So there are different clubs. So like I participate with the Porsche Club, for example, and then there are private clubs, and we go to different tracks throughout the season, uh, all across the Northeast. And it's fantastic because um, you, once you get on that track, and it takes a tremendous amount of skill. It's not like driving from uh, you know point A to point B. Um, it takes a lot of experience, a lot of time to gain that skill, but it really requires total concentration. And how fast are you going? Just for setting the context here. Yeah, I mean, you know, I go up to you know 140 something miles an hour. That's crazy. 144 is my it's my highest velocity speed, but um, which is fast, but you, it, everything, all of your worries and everything that's in your mind goes out the wind because you are 100% concentrated on that car and that track because things happen so quickly that if you lose your concentration for, for 10 milliseconds, bad things can happen and the consequences can be severe. Um, so I love doing it, and I also love it because there's a tremendous amount of camaraderie. You know, everyone who's involved also loves cars and racing and driving, and it's a great way to to make friends. And we see each other at the same events over and over, and you learn a lot from each other. And so I have a fantastic hobby. So, so you mentioned learning there at the end. Um, what were some of your, you know, what was your favorite subject when you were when you were a child, like? Think back grammar school, high school. Uh, I was pretty good in geography. I was, I was a good geography guy. You found how you can apply a life skill from an early age to your role uh, that otherwise may have no application? <laughs> well, I never thought about that, but uh, indeed. I mean, I could pick out Botswana on a map. 
you know, in fifth grade. And I think few, few others could probably do that. How, how will I ever use this in life? You must have asked your teacher yet. I'm still trying to find a student housing project in Botswana, but that's another story. And I, I think we're going to leave it there. You know, thanks uh, very much, Oliver, for you know taking the time today and you know sharing your story on student housing and and answering some you know personal questions to let us you know understand uh, a little bit more about your business and about yourself. And uh, you know, we generally try to give our guests uh, an opportunity to you know reflect on you know their business and everything we talked about and leave us with a, a final thought, if you will. So, any uh, you know final thoughts you'd uh, like to share with us? I absolutely love doing what I do. I love sitting in my office and I love looking at contracts. I love looking at potential investment acquisitions. And I love going to our properties and seeing our residents and seeing them bouncing around and seeing the shuttle bus driver who takes pride in knowing everyone's name and seeing the property manager that's taking the initiative to do the best Halloween special ever. And I love coming back to New York and back to the office and looking at a paper and realizing there's, there's really, there's really something there. There's, life and a community and fun and there's really nothing more gratifying than that well oliver uh you know thanks for your final thought and you know thanks for your time today and you know sharing your thoughts about student housing and uh we, we just ask um how can people connect with you absolutely you know look for me on linkedin and feel free to uh, send me an invite request and would be happy to uh to chat with anyone and um you know very much look forward to uh to hearing from the audience Again, that's Oliver Swan, managing partner of Treesdale Real Estate Partners. Uh, you can reach him on LinkedIn. Thanks, uh, thanks again, Oliver. And thanks again for, uh, for listening this week. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again next time. And, uh, and from here, Scott. Thanks, everyone, for joining on Real Estate Is Your Business. You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at realestatebizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.